Would it surprise you, beloved listeners, to know that the decade of 2010 to 2020 saw more people take part in protests than at any other point in human history, from the so-called Arab Spring to the student rebellions in uh, in Hong Kong, but few of the protests actually, or few of the protesters actually got what they wanted. Indeed, in many cases, they got the exact opposite. Award-winning journo Vincent Bevans has been exploring this uh, this paradox, and he's travelled the world, interviewing hundreds of participants in in a dozen or so countries to understand why things haven't gone to plan. His uh, his new book is called uh, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. It's published by Hachette. Uh, he was last on the program in 2020 to talk about his fascinating book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that uh, shaped our world. So I welcome you back, uh, Vincent. Thank you very much. How far and wide did you travel to put the book together? As wide as one can go, I think. I spent about four years um, in 12 countries, uh, and those were selected based on the protest events that got so large that they actually dislodged or fundamentally destabilized given countries. So I was around um, Europe, North America, South America, Africa, and Asia. <laughs> That's most of the populated continents. Uh, and, and in another sense, this work builds on 10 years of uh, investigations that I've done, starting with my own experiences in Brazil in 2013. We'll go back to Brazil in due course, but let's start with the... Uh with the period of protest known as the Arab Spring. Now, we all vividly recall those uh, those images from Egypt back in 2011 when right. thousands gathered in the city square. Uh, remind us how that mass movement actually got underway. Yeah, and that, that image, the undeniably powerful and inspiring image of Tahrir Square, in Cairo, I think, did much to define the rest of the decade, but a lot of people don't remember where it actually came from. So uh, initially in late 2010, uh, a man in the interior of Tunisia uh, set himself on fire. Now, this was not the only time that this had happened in that region, um, but it just so happened that the people around him, his family members, uh, organized uh, political activists, uh, trade union organizers, came together uh, to begin a uh, intense set of protests, first in the interior of that country, finally reaching the capital of Tunis, and finally forcing the overthrow of Ahmed Ben Bella in that country. Now, in Tunisia, there was quite a um, wide set of discrete political organizations that all sort of acted in the ways that we, throughout history, are more or less um uh, uh familiar to to students of revolutionists uh, across the world but then what happens in in Egypt just a few weeks later is that a group of activists uh and uh revolutionaries that have been organizing together on and off in different ways in opposition to Mubarak put on a protest on January 25th uh, 2011. And now this protest initially is supposed to be about police brutality. The original organizers of this protest do not even plan to ask for the overthrow of Mubarak 
uh, let alone plan to actually achieve it. Um, but what happens is, as I think as a result of partially social media, partially the inspiration of Tunisia, partially the um, the importance of traditional media like, like Al Jazeera in the region, far, far more people come out into the streets than they ever expected. They actually end up taking Tahrir Square, which they do not plan for. And then on January 28th, three days later in another protest, they end up really taking the city. Um, the police go to battle with the protesters and the police lose. The police rip off their uniforms. They run into the night. They disappear into the desert. And at this point, the revolutionaries in Egypt could have done whatever they wanted, really. But what they do is they take the square. And in, for the next 18 days, they are living together in the center of Cairo. Um, people of all uh, ages, classes, uh, 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 secular Egyptians, Islamists, um, uh, traditional families, communists, lesbians, every single type of uh, Egyptian is living together in the square. And that's really what we see around the world uh, at the beginning of 2011. But what they had in Tahrir Square, or what they didn't have, was, well, a revolutionary vanguard. Well, right. So as I said, on January 28th, they could have done anything. And a lot of revolutionaries that I spoke to in Egypt said, well, if we could do it again, we should have actually taken power. We should have actually stormed the levers of the government. We should have taken over the television station. But again, we who would have done that? We didn't know who was who should have done that. There, we didn't. No one had planned for that possibility. And if we had done that, that would have sort of violated the leaderless nature of this particular protest. So, what you get over the next eighteen days is if you pay attention. The group in the square that is actually the most organized is the Muslim Brotherhood, even though they weren't the people to put together the original protests in the first place. So after Mubarak uh, steps down, that was uh, when? On February the 11th. You've got yes. a, a, a power vacuum and the Muslim Brotherhood then fill it. Yeah, so initially what happens is the the protesters, as I say, accidentally create a power vacuum. Uh, initially, there is what you would just, base, you know, in a very, very narrow sense, consider a military coup. So the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces says, okay, we're taking over and we're going to put on elections. Um, and because they do put on elections, this can be seen, I think, as a better outcome than what you had previously, which was just a straight dictatorship. Uh, and in the first um, elections held in 2012, the Muslim Brotherhood does win. And I think that if the secular center-left forces had um, come together to form a coalition, it seems like they could have won that election in 2012, but they didn't. The Muslim Brotherhood ends up winning uh, the first election one year later. And, of course, these days we've arguably got a regime more brutal than Mubarak's. Yes, and so what happens is by 2013, behind the scenes, uh, reactionary monarchies in the Gulf um, work to create a new protest movement in Egypt, which pretends to be grassroots, pretends to be the youth sort of organizing online to uh, in, in opposition to a bad leader. And I think Morsi was a bad leader. But what it turns out is this is just a prelude to a military coup. The new wave of protests in June 2013 does not lead to uh, elections or to a revolutionary situation. There is simply a military, a brutal military coup, which takes over uh, in a government in Sisi, which massacres approximately 1,000 defenders of the Muslim Brotherhood. And that is who we have to this day. Uh, that is the that is the man overseeing what's happening in Gaza, or at the border, at least with Gaza right now. Let's uh, cross the Atlantic um, to uh, Brazil in 2013. And you were reporting on the protests there. That's right. In, in June 2013, 
as this is unfolding in Egypt, I'm working as a foreign correspondent in Sao Paulo, the largest city in South America. And what you get is something that is strangely similar uh, ultimately to Egypt, but it starts out with a small group of leftists and anarchists organizing protests against a rise in the price of a bus. Um, this group ultimately actually wants to make all public transportation free for working class Brazilians. In the long term, they have quite uh, an optimistic view of what the state can provide to, to poor Brazilians. But what they're doing in this month is shutting down streets, uh, shutting down turnstiles, uh, and demanding uh, cheaper public transportation. Very strangely, the media in that country call for a police crackdown. But when the police crackdown comes, and this is a dynamic which is quite important throughout what I call the mass protest decade, it is often the images of violent police brutality repressing the protest that causes it to explode. When the protest does explode in Brazil, it explodes in a way that the original organizers had never imagined. Uh, new protesters come in with a new set of understandings of what the protest is all about. They tend to be more right-leaning. They tend they try to bring in a more diffuse set of demands. And I think that ultimately they win at uh, redefining what the streets are all about. It was up close and personal for you, wasn't it? Because they're firing rubber bullets, they're using tear gas, and uh, you found refuge in the interest entrance of a residential building oh absolutely on june 13 i am i am one of the recipients of this uh, brutal police crackdown i am hit along with many many other protesters and along with many other journalists i'm not one of the journalists that very famously goes viral for being repressed uh, this there's a couple of people that i've known for years that become sort of unwitting uh, uh, symbols of this police brutality, but I'm absolutely hit and I'm absolutely in the streets over the next few days watching the thing change in very strange ways from, from hour to hour, from day to day, as millions pour into the streets um, behind the original anarchists and leftists. How did this mass movement lose its way? Well, in this case, and, and I and I spent a lot of time interviewing both the original organizers of this protest and the government that was in power, and and even though foreign media, uh, I think in a in a quite responsible way, um, dubbed this the Brazilian Spring, as if Brazil was going through its own Arab Spring, uh, Brazil at the time was governed by a popularly elected uh, social democratic uh, president um, with overwhelming support, and so I interviewed people in the government and the original organizers. And I think there's a general interpretation amongst the original organizers that they unleashed a wave of energy. Uh, they unleashed a wave of protest into the streets that they could not control. They were also opposed to leading protests. These were This was a group that was quite in a quite an idealistic way, opposed to leadership of any kind. And so when the millions of people came into the streets with their own ideas about what this should all be about, they entered into conflict over what it was about. Um, initially, uh, the new arrivals got into arguments with the original arrivals, with the original organizers. Um, but if you just look seven days later from that, the day of that crackdown, the day that I was tear gassed and, and, and shot at, uh, more, more right-wing elements actually violently expel the original uh, anarchists and leftists from the streets. So right-wingers infiltrate and uh, help exacerbate the uh, the confusion. 
Yeah, they 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 hijack. I would suppose. I would say they they because they're not they're not hiding the ways in which they've entered the streets. They enter the streets and say, "No, this is about what I say. It's about." And the original leftists and organizers, uh, leftists and anarchists that had organized the protests, had always counted on causing a mass revolt, but they'd always sort of assumed that a mass revolt would go their way. But it turns out that the very particular set of people that enter the streets is different than the ones that they had planned to enter the streets. And this is something, this is a dynamic that comes up also throughout the mass protest decade. When you have organized far-right elements, these are type the types of guys that tend to see an opportunity on the streets. They, send a, they tend to see a street battle and think, well, maybe we can win. Vincent Bevins has come back to the program on this occasion. He's the author of If We Burn, the uh, the mass protest decade and the missing revolution. Within a, well, pretty shortly, the president uh, is ousted in a, a parliamentary coup and Lula mm. da Silva was imprisoned on charges of corruption. What happens next? Yeah, and, and the, both of those things uh, take place with the help of a group that did enter the fray in June 2013, that did believe uh, that they could contest the meaning of the protests, and they formed their own group, and they rose to leadership of a protest movement while the original group was always against leadership, and then they support the election of extreme rights presidential candidate, candidate Jair Bolsonaro in 2018. And then this same group, this group of kids that pretends to be the same thing as the original organizers, um, enters government in 2019. They enter government in the same election as Jair Bolsonaro. And this, I think this is a reminiscent of in Egypt in, in, in interesting ways, because they pretend to be doing the same type of revolution, but really they're trying to seize power. How extraordinary that so quickly Brazil had the uh, the most right-wing elected leader in the world in Bolsonaro. Yeah, and I mean, because if, I mean, when I got to Brazil in 2010, I was sent there originally for the Financial Times, and then I started working for the Los Angeles Times, to cover the rise of a, a a global South country that was doing extraordinarily well under a popular social democratic president. And then uh, this fell apart very, very quickly. So the years, the years between 2013 and 2018 were very, very disorienting for Brazilians, and I think anyone else that lived through this as a foreign journalist or, or, or resident in the country. So this really powered a lot of what I, what this paradox that I would try to understand in researching for If We Burn. Let's flash forward to 2022. What mm -hmm. do you make of uh, leftist uh, Lula da Silva's return to the presidency last year? Yeah, so this is something that I covered up close. Um, and this was something that Lula was just barely able to pull out. Um, so you got a a ragtag coalition of all of the democratic forces which still existed in Brazil, uh, including center-right political parties, pro-democratic elements of the business class, social movements like the, the Brazilian landless workers movement, um, uh, in a very unexpected turn of events, given the history of uh, U.S.-Latin American relations, it seems that the United States did not support Jair Bolsonaro's attempts to carry out a right-wing coup, and he tried many, many times um, in 2021 and 2022. I think it was um, largely because he had done such a bad job at running the economy that he lost the support of uh, important economic interests in the country and without outside of the country. But he very, very he tried very, very hard to pull it off, and just you know. By the end of 2022, after he loses the election, um, Bolsonaristas, as they're now called, and they, you know, they're wearing the clothes, they're they're acting in the way that we 
identify we we could now identify uh, as having its origin in June 2013. They're wearing uh, Brazilian football tops. These guys shut down the now they're the ones that shut down the roads across the country. In in late uh, 2022, the Bolsonaristas tried to organize for a military coup by shutting down the roads. And these are really now, uh, you know, ironically, strangely, the same guys that emerge in June 2013, and they're using the same tactics that the original leftists and anarchists have been using for arguably progressive tactics. So one of the things I think we learn by the end of the what I call the mass protest decade is there's nothing inherently progressive or reactionary about any tactic. Like anyone can do a protest, anyone can shut down a street, um, and you have to be very willing to pay attention to who is going to take advantage of a given situation uh, and a given tactic. You uh, write about the concept of uh, structuralist protest. Yes. I come to the conclusion that in the 2010s, a particular type of response to injustice becomes very popular, if not even indeed seeming as the only natural way to respond to injustice. And this is the apparently spontaneous, leaderless, horizontally structured or apparently structureless uh, digitally coordinated mass protest in public squares or in the streets. And one point that I try to make, and this is not mine, but historians and sociologists of of, of protest um, point out that none of these things are natural. They all come from somewhere. So I try to explain where all of they come, where they all come from. But what happens in this decade, I think, uh, often quite tragically, is that this particular recipe, this particular way that that citizens can respond to injustice is far more successful at putting people on the streets than had been planned for and often puts so many people on the streets that they dislodge or destabilize existing governments or really create revolutionary situations. But a protest, especially this type, one without structure, one without someone that's willing to stand up and take over or even indeed articulate demands to existing elites, is very poorly suited to take advantage of the type of power vacuum that is created across the decade. So as a very rough way to understand what happens, we can often look to see who is willing to enter the power vacuum, who is willing to impose structure on, on apparent structurelessness in these uh, in these moments of, of political opportunity. You're making a, a sharp contrast with the old left of the early 20th century. It pursued change through, uh, well, party organisation and revolutionary vanguards. Yes, and I think that uh, in the first half of the 20th century, including up to the movements in, in, in my home country, the United States, that inspired so much of the waves of protest that dominated the second half of the 20th century. So the, the black civil rights organizations in the 50s and early 60s, and certainly all the organizations that we would consider as parts of the old left, trade unions or organizations, mass political parties, all would have assumed that you needed discipline organization and strategic thinking um, as part of a response to elites. But by the end of the 20th century, a different set of concrete political circumstances emerges. A lot of these organizations have been decimated and you also get an emergence of thinking that that says, well, maybe it's okay that, that organizations have been decimated. Maybe as individuals connected through the internet, that can work. I'm desperate for a happy ending. So not all the protests of the last decade ended in failure. Some gains, I'm thinking of, well, South Korea and Chile. Yes, yes, exactly. And this is an important part, I think, of this history. I don't select uh, the cases based on failure or, or what I agree with. I select based on size. And you have a few cases where you can really point to positive um, gains for the movement. Uh, in South Korea, 
largely because of the uh, simplicity and achievability of the demand, but also because of the participation of trade union movements. Uh, the candlelight revolution succeeds in impeaching the president of that country. And then in Chile, um, the class of 2011s, as it were, because there's huge amounts of protests that take off around the world uh, in the wake of Tahrir Square, and one of them is Chilean, the Chilean student movement. Um, one of the leaders of the, the class of 2011, Gabriel Boric, takes power uh, becomes now the president of a of Chile after an unexpected mass protest explosion in 2019, which once again happens uh, as a result of a, the uh, the increase in the price of transportation in Santiago, the capital of Chile. So he can certainly look back upon the mass protest decade and and uh, 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 point to a an outcome which is a lot happier than those uh, faced by people in uh, Egypt or Brazil. In your uh, interviews with so many activists, uh, did all of them feel overwhelmed by defeat or did some some see some sign of hope in what they tried to do and failed? The reason that 200, 250 people sat down with me, the reason this book was possible, the reason these people wanted to share their stories, often some of the most difficult moments of their lives, was that they believed in learning from what had happened in building upon it. So they recognize that they have been defeated for now, but they would look, like to look forward to a world in 2030 or 2035 in which uh, they can look back upon the apparent failures of the 2010s and see actually the seeds of true change, see the beginnings of, of proper revolutionary outcomes, or at least uh, uh, the beginnings of a path to a better world. But they also believe that for that to happen, you have to sit down and, and very seriously think about what you can learn from what, what happened. So no, no one that sat down with me was dejected or, or gave up on the idea of trying to build a better world. Indeed, the, the reason of, that they wanted to go through all of this history was in the long-term and serious project of, of, of making a better world. Vincent, thanks for this. Vincent Bevins, award-winning journal and author of If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution, published by Hachette. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.